I want to welcome uh, Jose Hernandez to the In My Feels uh, podcast. Uh, Jose is an amazing visual artist um, and former electrical engineer. Uh, he, he's uh, co-founded uh, Immersive Arts, which is an amazing um, uh, gallery and everything else. Uh, it's a collaborative and art designed prof uh, for professionals to help create centering calming spaces uh, for institutions and corporate settings. And after a near-death experience in January 2000, uh, and, and after a long uh, and difficult recovery, uh, your life has obviously changed dramatically during that. Um, and how we usually start the show is um, thoughts, feelings, emotions, positivity, negativity, beliefs, conditionings on the inside create your outside exterior. So my question for you is, how are you feeling right now in this moment? Uh, I, I feel very calm. I feel like, uh, I mean, through the course of my entire life, I've been trying to find myself. And I feel very comfortable living in my skin after that experience. So I feel very good about who I am. Wasn't always that the case, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so, yeah, I feel, I feel so much gratitude and so much love for everything around me. I experience it very different today than I did, you know, 20 years ago, up until 20 years ago. You know, when I just realized how amazing and magnificent life is and all that it takes to create an environment so we could exist here. So all those things that had to happen for me to be here, for you to be here, for all of us to be here, and to create an environment where we can live and survive and, and eat and, and breathe and, and do all these things. I, I just think about those things in a very profound way now. I, I used to take that all for granted. Amazing. Um, before we dive into your kind of near-death experience and, and everything else, um, I just want to tap into kind of the accident, pre-accident, how you were feeling before the accident. You were kind of an uh, um, electrical engineer. I, I just want to dive a little bit on that, just to give some backstory for the listeners before we kind of dive into your experience and then the after and then your thoughts and feelings and all that type of stuff. Um, so, yeah, definitely just uh, pre uh, when you're an electri electrical engineer. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I, I took on that, 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 that uh, role of work simply because it paid well. And, of course, I grew up in an environment, I, I, I was born in the South Bronx. So I grew up in an environment where it's kind of like dog eat dog and it's competition and it's, you got to get out there and hustle. And, and uh, my world was one that was a very materialistic realm. So I thought my value and the way people perceived me was based on what I owned. So if I have one house, you're at a certain level on that ladder. But if you own five, you're up higher on that, on that rung. And I, I used to live a life that was very mundane. You know, it was about having fun, partying, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it can't be the only thing that your life is about. And uh, I was just completely consumed by that world. Uh, prior to my experience, you know, I was putting together a pretty large program that uh, uh, in South Florida with, with some athlete friends that I had, uh, mostly football players. Uh, it was going to be a facility called Jams. It was going to be, uh, we were, we were kind of coining it an, an adult theme park in the sense that it was going to be eight clubs, 
we had a, a small arena. In fact, uh, uh, we had a sponsor for the arena. We had sponsors for everything. Uh, and uh, it's, it's really strange because I, I had left my, my, the work that I used to do to kind of do this. And then we had a six month flow. So I said, let me go back and make a few bucks till we break ground. So this was in November, my experience would break ground in, in April. And I'm like, you know, let me see, uh, just go to work for a while while this thing happens. And uh, it created this, uh, you know, from the big, for when it first happened, the most unbelievable catastrophe for me because it, it kind of really completely dismantled this, this project that we were working on. So we had a 20 acre piece of land. We had everything. We had all these contracts. We had all this thing going. And then, uh, you know, one moment in one day can take everything you have away from you in a second. Mm -hmm. And uh, that that's a sobering thought still for me today, but that's where I was. I was in a very competitive kind of world. I was at that point, because there was so much, I'm going to say good stuff going on in my mind. I was in a really good place. And uh, uh, so, yeah, I was feeling good and I was feeling like things were going to be great. Uh, looking forward to a, a really crazy future, right? Because, you know, imagine being involved with eight clubs and all this. Your life is going to be pretty different yes. than what it's become. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I, I, I mean, you know, because I used to be that, that, that type of guy, you know, the bigger the house, the bigger the everything else, the more happiness comes with all that type of stuff. And I realized none of that actually makes me happy because if I'm not happy before it, I'm not going to be happy after it either. Um, I want to dive in a little now into your kind of the, the, the accident, the day of, um, and how you were feeling at the time. Yeah. So, I mean, Technically, my mindset was because I had all this stuff right, right there on the horizon. I'm like, yeah, this is, I'm doing good. Uh, uh, I mean, I got to tell you, I remember the day clearly. It's, 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 it carves itself into your mind, if, if you could imagine that. So, you know, got up in a bucket, went up to run some electrical lines, and uh, it was Wednesday. And... Uh, following day was going to be Thanksgiving. So I'm looking forward to that, forward to that four day weekend. You got black Friday, you got all this stuff going on and we're running a bit late and behind. So we want to get done. So, uh, anyway, we decided we'll keep the bucket up instead of coming up and down all that crazy maneuvering, bad decision, but a great decision if that makes any sense, okay? Because so that changed my life completely. But anyway, I broke my ribs. Uh, the driver hit, bumped into a tree. I broke all the ribs on my right side and uh, I was sent to the emergency room and uh, it started a, an interesting journey because they gave me some medication and uh, I was allergic to it. So it was a painkiller that had ibuprofen in it. So the, it, that was the anti-inflammatory component Turns out I'm allergic to that and it started to make my breathing really difficult. So I went home, I called the hospital. I said, man, it's really hard to breathe. And they're like, that's ah, normal, dude. You, you <laughs> broke your ribs, you got, I was all taped up. You can't take a deep breath, you know, forget about it, you're fine. And then I said, okay. 
Anyway, I kept taking that medication and slowly and slowly I started to deteriorate till uh, when we got to New Year's, that year was that a really interesting new year because it was that 2000 and they were all worried about the computers failing and all that. Uh, and I was just vaguely aware of that because I was in really another space. I was so sick. So you, and, you went uh, from Thanksgiving all yeah. the way to New Year's with kind of deterioration and yep. wow, insane. It was a very slow process. And what happened was I got to a point where I could sleep laying down then I had to sleep sitting and until I actually moved myself into the living room. So I would let other people sleep. And uh, uh, so got up one day, January 5th. And I, I, I had this little thing they gave me to see where I was. I was at 125, which is really low. You're supposed to be about six to 800. And my wife at the time took me to the hospital with my son and uh, got into the hospital and uh, got late. It was about 11 o'clock at night. So I said, you know, you guys go home. I'm going to be fine. It's not a big deal. So my wife and my son went, went home. And I stayed in the hospital. It took a couple hours before they kind of put me into a, a space where I was by myself. You know how the emergency room is. You're kind of moving around. And uh, I remember the nurse telling me, you know, you got a little button there. We're all familiar with that. If you need help, just push it. So she leaves the room, she closes the door and I'm sitting there like thinking and uh, realizing how difficult it was to breathe. And thinking I should call them, right? And then the South Bronx kid comes back into you and you're like, no, I'm a guy, I'm tough. This is nothing. I'm going to be okay. I don't need any help. And I, I waited. And I waited about 45 minutes. And then I, by the time I hit the, the button, you know, it took about a minute for the nurse to come in. And that felt like hours to me. Mm -hmm. Anyway, she gets there and she just looked at me. She just hit the cold blue on a wall. And the next thing I know, this room is getting filled with people. They're putting a board behind my back. They're dropping me. They're stripping me. And I'm fighting a series of emotions. And I'll share some of these with you. So the first emotion that I experienced was shame. And I'm like, I'm ashamed because I'm a guy and I'm trying to hang on to the sheet. And I'm so weak that I can't. They just strip it off of me like nothing. And I feel so powerless. And... Uh, and then they start dripping. Uh, so that was my, my first real emotion. The next one was, I started thinking, I think I'm gonna be all right, there's nothing really wrong, but what if something's wrong? It's like 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning, there's nobody here, I'm alone. Now that's a crazy thought because the room is filled with people, but I felt alone and uh, then I started thinking about my family. I got two children and I'm, I'm laying in this bed and I'm thinking, what if this is something that's serious and I don't make it? I'll never see them again. And I'll never see my wife, I'll never see my family, my mom, none of that. And I was like devastated. And I felt this knot. Now, if you can imagine, you can't breathe. So I'm not, I'm not exchanging any air at this point. I can't get any air out. I can't get any air in. I feel this tremendous knot right here in my heart. And I'm like, oh my God. 
it overwhelmed what I was feeling whilst I was struggling to breathe. So it was more significant than me not being able to breathe at that point, mm-hmm. emotionally. And I just felt like I was, I died right there, if that makes any sense. Because I said, I'll never see them again. This is, you know, I, I never said this. I, I didn't say goodbye. I, I was thinking all these thoughts about all these things that I didn't have an opportunity to do that I should have done. You know, I, I had an argument with, with a sister and I, I, we never made up. And all those things come through your head like, in a, it's crazy how fast that is. And uh, I let go of that. And then being an atheist, I, was, I, I started thinking, well, what if God is real? What if the creator exists? I say creator because my, my father's half Aboriginal. So his perception of creation and my mother's were very different. My mother was Catholic. My father was First Nation, so very divergent. Uh, but anyway, uh, I said, what if you're real? I'm going to reach out to you. So I say, God, if you're real, if you could intercede here, if you could change this, and uh, I promise I'm going to be a better guy, I'm going to be much better person. I, I'm going to change completely. So I literally was bargaining with a God that I actually didn't believe in. Mm-hmm. And I waited. And time expands in these moments. It feels like a long time, even though it's only seconds. And it felt like a real long time. And, uh, my heart started to get very irregular because I'm, I'm, I'm unable to breathe and they're trying to stick a tube in me. They're trying to intubate me. And uh, I, I just realized at that point, I knew I was right. There is no God. There's, there's nothing. What was I thinking even trying to, to do this? And as I'm saying that, uh, two things happened. It, it's almost like it destroyed all the hope I had left. And it, it made me very fearful of dying, that this was inevitable and I'm gonna die now. And I became so fearful that I'm thinking, I should hold somebody's hand here. I need somebody to hold my hand. And I couldn't speak. So all I could have done was reach out and grab a hand, but. As I'm having that thought, here's the next thought that comes in. My dad, who had died about six years before. And he taught me being a man means you can't show fear. Being a man means you can't ask for that hand. And if I did that, he would turn in his grave. Now imagine, I'm worried that I'm going to die, and this is what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. And so my body actually stiffened. It went, ooh. And I decided not to take a hand or I couldn't ask for it, but I wouldn't take it. And the mindset there is I think I'm being a tough, brave man. And the reality is when I came back, I realized how, what a coward I had been to be so afraid to show my emotion and be human. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, at that point I start thinking, I don't think I can do anything to change the outcome because now my heart's getting so irregular. So if you imagine a horse galloping, like, and then it's like, 
pa, 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 until you can feel it stop. You know, when it stops, you're in trouble. And I remember thinking, and I'm sorry if I get a little emotional, but I remember thinking, I'm not quitting. And I'm not giving up. I just know there's nothing I could do to change this outcome. So, Jose, you have lived a hard life. It's been really difficult. So maybe it's okay to die. But I had to be sure in my own head that I wasn't giving up, that I wasn't quitting. And then I, I somehow found some peace there. And the minute I said it was okay to die, I, I'm looking at the frame of the door and it's really bright. And there's a shadow standing there. And it feels like a feminine presence to me. And I see her move into the room and just reach out and touch me. That touch that I needed so badly. Mm -hmm. And instantly, the minute she touched me, I just felt this warm breeze blowing. And I felt better than I had ever felt in my life. I didn't feel sick. I could breathe. I was fine. Yeah. What did she, I mean, did, did, what does she look like? She, well, it, I could describe her. I could describe her as she was very, she had like alabaster skin. She had green eyes. She had like reddish hair. Uh, she was profoundly beautiful, but and you never not, not human. Uh, okay. That makes any sense. She was like, I could almost see through her. So she was very transparent. Uh, and when she touched me, I had that experience and I feel that wind and I got long hair, right? So I'm thinking, oh man, my hair is blowing in this wind and I'm, I feel like I'm being lifted. And uh, next thing I know, I'm standing in the corner of the room and I'm looking at myself and I'm looking at these people doing CPR trying to save me. And there's a lot of tension in that crash team. We never think of them being stressed doing this, but there was a lot of tension in them. And I looked at myself and I was dead. And this is one of the defining moments in my experience. It was really important. I looked at myself and I'm dead. And I said, that's me and I'm dead. And I realized that everything I needed to be standing here and seeing and thinking was dying in that body, was dead in that body. So how could I be doing this? And I said, that's me and I'm dead. But if that's me, then who am I? And I hear a voice very clearly. So it's this woman presence. And she says to me, imagine you're a car and your car has 5 million miles in it. And now it's time for you. Uh, you can't fix it anymore. So you got to let it go. Now you have to say goodbye to your body. And Lou, I'm going to tell you, there was the most amazing experience take place right there. That's the second most profound moment of this experience. So I looked at my body. And for the first time in my life, I loved the vessel that my body had been. I was perfect. And I felt so good about having the opportunity to have lived that life in that body. And I realized that that body sacrificed everything it had for me. 
it gave me from the moment that I was created to this moment, it gave everything it had for me. And now it's, it, it gave itself up, sacrificed itself for me. And I was so in love with who I had been. And before that, I look in the mirror, oh, this, this is wrong with me. This is wrong with me. Oh my God, I got this, I got that. I was never good. I never had, I was never happy about who I was. I was always judging myself the same way we judge other people. And I realized I was the, the, the worst critic of me. And in that instant, that all dissolved and all I could feel was love and gratitude for who I had been. And memories started to pop in my head. And we think of crossroads as those really defining moments in life. And I learned that the crossroads in our lives are every moment that we have in front of us. Because at any moment, we could do something that pivots our life. And I realized how much love and beauty and grace was in my world. And it came in the form of benign memory. So I remember holding my little brother's hand who was two years younger than me. And I was about four, he was about two. And how happy I had been and smiles. And, and when a little kid, you have a, a, a young daughter now and you look in her eyes and she looks at you with that total trust and that love. That love is almost like a physical presence. It, it moves through the room. And I started to see all these things. What a breath of air was. Ah, we take that breath of air. We go, how beautiful that feels. So when you were, obviously, these, these thoughts came in, where, where were you? I guess it's, it's hard to separate the kind of yeah. the memory from you, you know, looking at, at you as, as someone who is dying or dead. Right. You're this, this being. Mm-hmm. Did you feel human? I mean, when, you, when, you, when, you, when these memories came in, were you... All you could see were the memories. There was nothing else. Did you disappear from the room or the hospital room? No, I, I was present in the room. Yep. Uh, like if you can imagine any room we're in, I'm standing in a corner and I was on this gurney and they're working on me several feet away from me. So I, I kind of uh, was detached, but I had an awareness that they could not see me but I had an awareness that I was still who I had been. So there was no disconnect from Jose physical life to Jose in this space. So I was the same being. I had not, I had memories of who I had been. I was still, I call that preservation of the self. So there was a part of me that still knew who I was and had been. And uh, uh, yeah, I was like so profound to realize how graceful we are how amazing we are how beautiful we are in this body and 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 whilst we're in it we don't think that yeah it's pretty amazing so at that point this spirit said to me we got to keep going and uh, i said goodbye to my body it was very painful to say goodbye to my body because i felt so much love and compassion for it and we walked off and I went into this, like a black hole. I fell in and I felt this tearing. We landed and the voice says, we got to keep going. Another hole, I fell in. It was the same thing. I felt this painful tearing. Landed on the bottom and uh, I found that I was in a ball of color. So if you imagine a ball, I'm right in the middle, suspended, color, 360 around me, everywhere I look. Except that this color was alive and moving and speaking to me. And uh, 
I felt so accepted, so like welcomed. It was, a, I have not had that experience anywhere else. And the color started moving to me. I started moving to the color, I don't know which, but I finally blend with the color and I become the color and I'm hearing like a million voices talking to me at one time. And at the same time, I, I'm, I'm hearing like this blueprint or this recipe for how to paint. I have never painted in my life. Now, this is really curious, uh, but it was like programming me. This is what you need to do. This is how you're going to paint. This is how you're going to do it. And I finally emerged from the color and I wind up in this space. And just for the sake of time, uh, I'm just going to say that I had an experience of becoming everything that I saw. So if I saw a tree, I became that tree. So I could feel myself drinking from the roots and how that felt. And if I saw a stone, I was that stone. If I saw a bird, I was that bird. And I experienced the most profound sense of becoming one. Wow. And ultimately, I get to this space where I, I'm just like hovering over a mountain and I'm looking at the horizon to my right. And I see the sun, but I see the sun like a ball of fire. Like I'm looking at it through a telescope and I can see the solar flares and it's so beautiful. And I can feel that warm air. And I understand that the reason I could fly here or hover is because this warm air is giving me buoyancy, it's lifting me. Then I look to the left and I see this beautiful cove and an ocean and I see my dad. And uh, he's about knee deep in the water. And what's interesting is my father was never very close to children, never. And he and I, we were always bumping heads. He used to drink. He used to be abusive. And, and my mom, I don't know how she managed to be with him. So I always used to kind of defend her and stick up for her since I was young. And I always got <laughs> put in my place a lot, right? You know what I mean? And... Uh, uh, anyway, we, we, we never hugged, we never spoke and we never said, I love you. And, uh, when my father died six years prior to this, I had the, the, the daunting task of having him disconnected from his, uh, uh, life sustaining equipment. And that was very hurtful to me. It was hurt, though, hurtful, simply because we never had an opportunity to say some things that we should have said, and now it was too late. He was in a semi-coma. He was intubated, so he was in a semi-coma, which is what they normally do. And I, being who I was and being raised the way I was, I, I couldn't even say it to him there. You know, uh, anyway from his death to there, I had carried a lot of guilt, a lot of shame, and a lot of what I call was lost opportunity, which is something that we need to navigate in this life and think of it every day, lost opportunity, because you don't wanna be in a bed like I was dying, and you have no way of doing any of these things. You have to do them whilst you can. So I see my father and I am the happiest being in the universe. What I feel 
that opportunity now to do what I couldn't do in life is so empowering to me. It's just like, oh God, what an opportunity. This is the most amazing, amazing thing that I could imagine. So I, I'm looking at my dad and he turns, go ahead. So just, just, just to kind of set the scene. So um, you're obviously in the corner of the room at, at the hospital, then you, you drop down, I guess, a black hole or tunnel type of thing. Right. Um, and then you're kind of hovering in the sky, staring at the sun. I mean, are these transitions pretty natural or are they just like instantaneous? Is it one minute you're floating, next minute you're standing beside your dad? What, what, what are the transitions like? No, it's one continuous flow. Okay. So there's no disconnect. So it's a smooth transition. So I'm in the hospital watching myself, then I'm walking with the spirit. I fall into this hole. Uh, I drop down, I fall into the other hole. Then I wind up in this ball. Everything's a smooth transition as if it's a normal event in life. So a normal day in my life. Here I am just going through this, yep. through this series of events. You know, like getting in your car, driving, you get out, you're somewhere else. And yep. what we normally do, that's how it felt. It didn't feel unusual. It didn't feel strange. So I see this man holding six children in one hand and six children in the other. And they're like holding hands and they're knee deep in the water. And then he turns around and I see him and I'm like, oh gosh. But anyway, here's what happens. I'm thinking, this is the chance for me to tell my dad all these things that I could never say when I was living. And here's a chance for him to tell me how he felt. And I'm going to forgive him and he's going to forgive me. And so we get close and I get to hug my dad. And when I hug my father, I am him. Just like what was happening before. And when I am him, I suddenly know everything he feels and everything he thought. And for the first time in my life, I understand how he loved me. And I understand that he was really proud of me. I was the first one to go to university. And how he had held on to all those things. And he understood that I loved him. And the funniest thing happened because it wasn't about me forgiving him anymore and him forgiving me. It was about me forgiving myself. And the minute I forgave myself, it's like I put all this stuff down and I left it there. It wasn't mine anymore. The guilt, the shame, whatever I had done, whatever I hadn't done, you know, the things that I was aware of that I did that were wrong, the things that I did incidentally that I didn't know were wrong and ultimately became that. I began to let go of all that guilt and shame and how I felt about myself and how I felt about others, how I thought about judgment, how I thought about what I had to give. And, and here's this moment where this become the most important thing of this lesson. I forgive myself, but what's the lesson? The lesson is I have the capacity to love while I'm in this world. So it became my mandate. This is what I need to do. I have to leave all the love that the creator or God, however you view this, gave me. I have to leave it here. Even if I get hurt, even if whatever, I have to put my love out there. I have to take risks with that. I have to leave it in this world because I don't want to take that back with me. It's the only thing that I own. Mm -hmm. 
And that became so crystal clear to me that I come back. My dad says to me, Jose, you got to go back. And I'm looking at my father like, man, you're crazy. <laughs> I ain't going back. Forget it. Yeah. I, lo I love this place. You know, and he's like, no, nope, you got to go back. Yeah. I mean, but, but, but bearing in mind, I mean, because uh, I've studied a ton of NDEs um, and I've had a, a bunch of people on the show and they all they pretty much all describe the same thing. They didn't want to come back. I mean, were you conscious of the fact that you were you were leaving people here? Um, and the only reason why I ask is because, you know, we've recently had, you know, family members pass away and during COVID and everything else. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the grieving process is, you know, but why would they leave? Right. And I think I think you you're someone who can answer answer that of of where you're aware of, obviously you were aware of where you came from in terms of physicality, but obviously you didn't want to come back, even though you had you know a, a child in, in physical form and, and and a wife and all that type of stuff. I'd love for you to just dive a little bit on 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 the the, the consciousness behind that. Yeah, and it's a very simple, very simple. So when I first emerged from this bubble of color. And I go into this world, I'm looking at myself, and I ask a question. And the question is, what's going to happen to my kids? And that voice says to me, don't worry, you can see them from here. Mm. And I knew instantly that I had never left them. I knew I would always be in their world, whether they knew it or not whether they believed or didn't believe. I knew I would see them. And I knew they would reunite right here with me at one point or another. Yeah. Because I guess we in physical terms think about time right. as, as a human construct. But in, I guess during your NDE, there is no conception of time. It just, right? Time doesn't exist. Yeah. I, I think time is a a human construct. We create time the way we, we have a, a an obsession with measurements and age and length and height and space and we're always trying to measure everything. And uh, time to me is not relevant. It's we, we exist in one time, the present. Mm -hmm. The rest is we don't know what the future could be. We think we know what the past was. Yeah. But we only know the past in terms of my time in this bubble. But all those connections, all those ancestors that I have, all that may, created the opportunity for me to be here is buried in an eternal time that goes way back to, we say the beginning, there's no concept of where that could have been. Yeah. You know? So uh, my, my philosophy of time has changed, obviously. But you're right, there is no, no time. Oops. I want to... Um... I, just for people listening, you know, how, how like grave, you know, uh, Jose's situation was. I mean, he, he, you know, you pretty much died for like six or seven minutes um, and you were in critical care unit for three months and every doctor telling you you're not going to make it. Um, and if you did, you're not going to live for very long after this. Right. Um, which I think is, is incredible. I mean, I, I and and just diving back in on your kind of your dad um, telling you you have to go back. And then at that moment of you being, when was the agreement of you coming back? Yeah. So, so the agreement came, we made an agreement. 
an actual agreement. So it's kind of crazy that you said that because he, we, he looked at me and he said, well, let's, let's, let's make an agreement. And he said, I promise you that when your time comes, I will come for you. I will come get you. And in that space, in that world that I was in, that dimension, whatever it was, heaven, whatever you want to call it, uh, that was enough for me to say, okay, I'll go back because I know you're going to come get me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I came back. And then when I came back in body, you know, there's a few thoughts that happen, right? We start thinking again from my physical brain. And uh, the first thought was, wow, what, what kind of a person was I that I got kicked out of heaven? <laughs> they, 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 they wouldn't even keep me, right? Yeah. And then the next thought was feeling my physicality and how broken my body was and how uncomfortable that was and being intubated and being in a room, uh, hearing these beeps and, and all these things going on. And yeah, I was six weeks and in, intubated for six weeks. Wow. Uh, uh, my prognosis was on, I believe, this space alive. Oh. Uh, when I finally got taken off of the intubator, uh, I remember asking my cardiologist, I just said a simple thing. I said, man, I think I went somewhere. And he said, oh, forget it. <laughs> your brain is still alive for two minutes after your heart stops. And I mean, they had every, you had DMT, you had all these medications. And I'm like, oh, man, I wasn't right. Yeah. I didn't go anywhere, you know, because while I was in this critical care intubated, every time a cold blue was hit that I was conscious of, it, mm -hmm. I would escape to that ball of color. And I would just immerse myself in those colors. And I kept telling me these colors are going to heal me. They're going to heal me. They're going to make me whole. And. I slowly started to improve. And uh, to this day, I believe, and this is anecdotal, it's just my belief that those colors saved my life besides the team of doctors and everybody else that was there. Yeah. Because uh, they gave me hope. They gave me something to live for that I had never, ever thought ever could exist besides my family, you know, cause my family was giving up on me. They were kind of like, Oh, you know, I could see it in their face. Right. So when someone that loves you comes, they can't disguise the fact that they think they're going to lose you. Yeah. So even though they're well-intended when they came there, they made me feel really bad because I felt like I was giving up on them. Yeah. You know? And uh, so, I escaped to that board color and, and I found my, my saving grace there. And ultimately I started to get better. I got out of the ICU. I uh, was in the hospital for six weeks. Then they gave me a year and a half to live. Mm. And uh, they, they gave me an option of doing surgery, removing half of each lung because I had some kind of progressive thing going on. And uh, I declined. I said, you know, I'm not coming back here. Anyway, I only had a 50-50 chance to survive the surgery. So uh, I took my chances, and that was 20 years ago. Wow. 
And uh, I mean, just for kind of, I guess, detail purposes, when you saw your your, your dad, who who had obviously passed away the six years previous to to your kind of NDE, what did he look like? I mean, was he the dad who kind of passed on at that point, at that age? Had he changed? I mean, uh, I'd love to know a little bit of that uh, that detail. Yeah, my my experience of my father was that he looked very much the way he did when he was had moved on. He was older. Uh, my sense was that he was exceptionally wise. There was a sense of knowing that he owned, that he didn't own while in life, in, in a physical life. So, you know, it, it's a really good question because nobody's ever asked me that. And, and it's very profound because I'm thinking about that moment. The thing about that moment is that it's engraved in you. You can't disconnect from it. Mm-hmm. You know, you have an NDE, but you think about that for every day of your life. Yeah. And 10, 20 times a day, you are thinking about that NDE. And uh, yeah, I remember that wisdom that he owned, that sense of knowing that, uh, uh, you know, he was like, he, he was him, but at the same time, he was so much more, uh, if that makes any sense to you. Absolutely. And you said he was, he was holding children. Mm-hmm. Did, did you recognize any of them? Were they family members or just kind of for the aesthetic? No, I, I didn't recognize any of them. But what I thought was curious was that I have seven siblings. So I have uh, three brothers and four sisters. And uh, he was holding seven children by the hand. So sometimes when I think of it, from that perspective, I think that talks to me about how we'll all come back together. Yeah. How we're all going to reunite somewhere. And uh, so I, I kind of reference them to be my brothers and sisters sometimes. And then there's times that I just don't know. I say, well, could, could have been anybody, but I think if, if it makes you feel that, then maybe that's what it is. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, uh, you know, I had, um, I had, uh, I don't know if you've heard of Do- Dr. Eben Alexander, mm-hmm. the Proof of Heaven um, uh, author. He he came on the show, and he, um, you know, he's obviously a neurosurgeon, so operated on the brain, and he actually died, well, you know, mm-hmm. flatlined for 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 a good while, and he had spinal meningitis, which attacked his brain, which is, I mean, you know, and he came back and couldn't even believe it couldn't believe what he'd saw. And, and, you know, I've studied a ton of NDEs. It's something that I find super interesting and, and, and something of the unknown, which I used, the unknown used to scare me, but now I love the unknown because how can you be scared of something you don't know? Right. Logically. Um, <laughs> and every single NDE experience is completely different. Yeah. Uh, I, I would say, you know, tailor made for that person or not tailor made for that person. Um, which kind of more so vindicates, um, you know, thoughts, feelings, emotions on the inside, create your outside exterior in this plane of physical existence, because you're, you manifest in this life just as you manifest in death. So you seeing your dad, you seeing the colors, you'll see, these are all things that probably resonate with you. Maybe not the arts form so much, but something that's probably in your psyche. Um, and it, it, it's, it's amazing to see. It's kind of more a vindication that I'm on the right path and, you know, certainly you are now of, of what you should be doing or the way you should be thinking, the way you're treating yourself. And, and I think that's something beautiful in that. Absolutely. I want to ask you, um, 
So you, so you became a visual artist after your NDE, not before. Had you ever thought about doing paintings? I mean, there's obviously a beautiful um, artwork in the back. Uh, was there any inclination for you doing art? I mean, you opening up nightclubs and all, and and being, uh, you know, uh, the electrical field and stuff is probably the complete opposite to the kind of art that you're creating now. Was it the influence of the colors you saw in the NDD that kind of drove you to the path of becoming a visual artist? Yes. Uh, if you could imagine, uh, before my experience, I was very linear. So... I never ever considered myself ever imagined that I would paint. Uh, so, I mean, stick figures were like a big deal, right? Uh, what I used to draw was what I needed to do for work. And those are just very rigid things, right? They're very defined, easy to draw a box and things like that. Uh, but uh, no, it, what happened was if you could understand you leave the hospital, can't walk. You lost about 30 pounds and I'm a pretty thin guy to begin with. It was hard to walk from a chair to a sofa. It was like a, a huge event. And you got oxygen, you got all these things all the time. So uh, I needed to integrate the experience. I needed to understand if it was real. So I, I started to look for mental health help because I thought I had broken. I said, I'm broken. If I believe what the cardiologist told me that something's wrong with me, that never happened. And I started to look for help. So I went to psychiatry for about four or five years. It was a hard journey. The integration to embrace the, this, this experience is not easy. Mm -hmm. The trauma of physically dying is very difficult. You know, it's, it's, it's not an easy, thing oh we just die and oh we come back and it's traumatic and so i was having a hard time processing all of this and i started thinking about the art about three years after my experience the colors really not the art and i started thinking what if i could do something with this art that i found so healing that i believe was the cornerstone of what turned my uh, prognosis around and maybe I could do something that could help others and that was a thought that started to kind of like take root in my my head and and grow and then I started thinking well I can't color I can't paint so how am I gonna try to capture something that you know it's not only color but had life it had movement anyway I started to experiment and experiment and I started to use that formula. And I said, okay, I'm gonna start with a black canvas. And it was very clear why I need to start with a black canvas because that's creation, creation. Everything starts in this emptiness that the space we believe is empty. In that black canvas is all the ingredients for me to create. And then I started to put paint layer by layer, one on top of the other. And that I was told represents us we're like an onion and we keep adding these skins and as we get older we keep changing so you we talked about your daughter how pure she is at, at one point but at one point something happens and we begin to put these little walls and these little barriers around us and they're mostly to keep us safe and to protect us we as parents also create these walls around them 
to keep them safe so they can protect themselves. We, th we call it teaching them to be ready for the world or whatever. Then by the time you're 20, you got all these walls, you go to university, everything's different. We keep changing. And our personalities, we, we, we call them personalities, but to me, we're different beings. And each one of these layers represents that person that I am at a certain time. Mm -hmm. And the philosophy is if I put all these layers in here, so this image has about 200 layers. The idea is that embedded in all that is everything about me that I need to know. Everything about everything. And if I look into that painting and I paint on metal and glass a lot so I see myself a little bit, kind of looking back to me so I get an awareness that there is a consciousness in there and there is an essence of life. And that essence is speaking to me. And this is why I think we like a painting versus another painting. It's communicating with us. We resonate with it or we don't. So anyway, I started to do it. And then I started to light it in very specific ways. And I was able to create movement. And uh, so I, we call it living art, living color. So when I do a meditation, I have a piece of art that's lit and it's moving. And as you get deeper and deeper into this meditation, you know, I, I look at color as a bottle of vitamins. All the vitamins that we need are in there. My body is going to absorb what it needs. So it has to have a lot of different colors so that we, we get the gamut of color. And uh, I didn't do it because I wanted to paint. I did it because in my heart, in my soul, I believe that it could change people's lives in a good way. Mm -hmm. And uh, it does. Yeah. And you start uh, teaming up with like um, some, some, some hospitals and everything else to kind of create these, I guess, incubation rooms of, because you never really think about that. I mean, you know, going to a hospital to me is quite a depressing experience. You know, it's mm -hmm. the bright lights, it's, you know, plain countertops, plain floors, people all wearing the same outfits. And it, it, it represents a place of sickness to me, not a place of health. Um, even the food they serve you is just, you know, not nice and all those type of things. And I think it's super smart. I mean, for, for what you're doing in terms of these incubation rooms of up, putting art up and visually stimulating someone who's sick to maybe change the notion a little bit and kind of, you know, look to the art for answers inside themselves. I yeah. think it's beautiful. Yeah. I, I actually started working with the drug addiction centers and rehab centers. And uh, the idea was, in my mind, this helped me survive this disease. What impact can it have on people? And remember, my view now, not like before, is that every second that I am alive, I am creating. We're both creating right now. Anybody that's listening is creating. The fact that we're listening, it, it, it's a creation process. And we have an opportunity to change our lives every given second that we own. So if I decide at this second to do A and I do it, it could have me in a very different path in two years than if I don't decide to do it. So I, I was looking at that kind of like as the premise of where I want to be. So I went into these rehab centers. I started working with a lot of addiction, a lot of what we call at risk and, and the vulnerable sector. And we started to see that this was working and the impact that it was having was more so on the clinicians. And they were like, well, how does this work? How does this work? How does this work? 
And uh, I know how it works from a spiritual perspective. So how do we quantify this now from a scientific perspective? So there was a uh, uh, professor of, from Nova University that came to one of my events and had the experiences like, wow, how does it work? How does it work? And she put the thought in my head of why don't we do a study? So we spoke with the university there. And at that time we were transitioning to move here to BC. So we kind of left all that behind and we moved up here. And we came up with immersive, immersive arts, which is the idea is a concept that if I could have a little space in my home, my sacred space, my uh, sanctuary space, where I have some, some art, some color, and I have a time to sit down and have, do a meditation or whatever, uh, we could all have these at home and have like a, I call it a 24-7 caregiver in my home with me because it's putting that energy out. Whether I'm aware of it or not, it's always present. Yep. And that was the premise that we started with. How do we get this in everybody's hands so they can have it at home and, and create their sacred spaces or the sanctuaries? And then we started thinking about the hospital because of my experience, of course. And we started thinking there are a lot of white papers and a lot of research. And we know that art and color therapy is evidence-based. That means that it has an impact on our health. Uh, but the, all these uh, uh, white papers were based on having art in what we call common areas where a lot of people are, so a lobby, things like that. And I started thinking because of a lot of people that have used my art to manage pain and things like that, I said, well, why don't we bring this into the rooms with the patient? And so... I've been really blessed. I'm talking with uh, two hospitals. One of them is here in Penticton, where I live. The other one is in uh, is Johns Hopkins, which is a very well-known research hospital. And the idea is to create an incubator for research. And what does that mean? That means that I'll have a screen, kind of like that, and I'll have 12 images. And I become the curator. So as a patient, I'm beginning to curate my own room. What painting or what image makes me feel better? I pick that. And then they begin to monitor. So they'll have equipment on me that will begin to collect the data and the matrix, the, the, have the matrix in place so that this could be done, uh, the metrics. And uh, it, it allows individual research to happen. So if I have knee surgery and I'm in room A, somebody has knee surgery in room B that's a male that's near my age, now you can begin to I, quantify what we're saying because I have the art and the other guy doesn't. Who uses more painkillers? How do we mitigate the use of oxy? The idea being that I left the hospital addicted to multiple medications, mostly anti-anxiety medication, pain meds, right? Because that's what they're giving me while I'm being knocked out. And in, in, in in, you're in a kind of like a semi-comatose state for a, a large part of, of, while you're intubated, right? And uh, anyway, I left addicted. It took me three years to wean myself off, and I was lucky. Mm -hmm. So with, with all these thoughts going through my head, the idea is how do we now take this into that space and we begin to impact the consumption of drugs in a medical environment? And the hospitals are resonating with the concept. And we got two that are, we're working 
the uh, uh, how we're going to make this happen. So COVID kind of benched it for a bit, but uh, I just had some conversation with uh, Johns Hopkins and the hospital here, and November looks like the window that it looks like we'll be able to come back to this. But uh, because I was doing that in the hospitals, we started putting this in a couple of public parks here where I live. We've got some some sculptures that I designed that uh, are embedded with technology, uh, which means it'll prompt me if I need a, hot, a hotline for uh, suicide, if I need a place to eat, if I need a home, a shelter. It'll also prompt if I want to go visit another place that might be nice. Uh, I'm a tourist or whatever. So it, it, it has a lot of technology embedded in it. And the parks are calling it like a 24-7 caregiver. And that makes me feel so good because we live in a world where we have expectations that are based on what we believe. And a lot of times things that we don't believe or that we, we, we don't acknowledge or we don't even think about, we dismiss, are the most critical things in our life. So I look at that and say, how many breaths of air do we take in a day? How many times do we think about it? We just do it. Without that breath of air, nothing happens for us. There's other lives. You know, everything to me is alive. So even when I look at a stone, it has life, it has a heart. When I saw it over there, so it has to have one here. I just don't, we just don't have the mechanism to pick that up here. Yeah. But, you know, it, it, may, it won't need the oxygen. Yep. trees, you know, all animals, you know, and, and in our culture, we would say anything with four legs, anything in the water, anything with, with two legs that flies or whatever. They need, they need this to survive. And, uh, you know, it, it's stuff that we never think about. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's, um, it's almost like the, the, the dream world connects you to the other side, but there's a reason why you can't really rem remember your dreams per se in so much detail is because your, your mind would probably explode if you could remember your dream. Yeah. Um, man, Jose, you're honestly amazing. I think your art's incredible. I love the colors. I love the visualization. I love it all. I, I thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, how, how has your transition been now in terms of, it's been so long since your NDE. Just one more question of, um, in terms of you now and your mental state and everything else, uh, I guess you can tap into that NDE, but do you feel like the human conditionings are, are creeping back in or the meditation, I guess, helps keep them away and keeps you connected to that other side? Yeah, that's a really good question, Lou. Uh, the answer is my near-death experience did not teach me anything about dying. It only taught me about life. And whilst I'm here, what my expression of that is going to be and my participation in it. And how do I take that now and use that in a good way? I, I was given a chance. A lot of us don't get to come back. Maybe they don't get to get this understanding or for, even if it's just me having this understanding that, that I feel, that I feel so grounded, that I feel so full, that I feel completely whole. I'm not seeking anymore. The reason I'm not seeking is because I just appreciate everything that's around me now. Never did before. Never, to me, they were things. And uh, 
Now I realize that nothing is a thing, that everything has a value. And I kind of try to think, and we were having this conversation before, if I'm here and I'm having this life experience and I can't take anything physical with me, what do I actually bring back? So the only thing I know that I took with me were good memories. So when I was falling and I felt that painful ripping, what I came to understand or what I was told was that that was all these moments that were painful in my life, all these moments that had negative energy attached to them, uh, all my fears, they can't go into this pure state with me. Mm. So it explained to me why we only have this sense of amazing love and peace and this calm that overwhelms us. We can't even describe it. It's so consuming. Uh, so, you know, I think, well, the next time that I go, I'm not going to need so much ripping because I know that I'm going to try to make as many good memories as I can. And, and for anybody listening out there, that's what I want to say. Make good memories. Give your life the value that it deserves. You know, make yourself number one. You know, take care of you because when you take care of you, then you could take care of others and, and, and give whatever God or the creator put in you to give, give it. You know, don't be afraid to love. Don't be afraid. You know, to, to, you know, if you, I never painted, paint, see if it resonates with you. Begin to do those things that bring this peace and calm and, and love into your world so that you could give it back. You know, it, it, you know, I, I find that we're not here to take, we do, but we're really here to give and serve. And we're all serving, whether we know it or not, we're serving with purpose or not. Even when I got my first job at KFC, breading chicken, you know, at that time I said, well, what a crappy job that was. When I came back from my experience, I said, man, what an opportunity I had to help bring that food to somebody's home that was going to enjoy it and love it and uh, enrich their life in some way. Yes. And it, 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 it's the perspective that I'm talking about. So how do I look at it before? Man, what a job. What, how, how, what the hell, right? And now, you know what? It had purpose. It had function. It enriched somebody's life. And, and I think that's what we're really about as human beings. And, you know, I think most of us are here. This is a challenging time now with COVID and with things like that. But it's up to each every, and every one of us to, to give and, and to understand and to help each other and to respect, you know, you know, whether you believe in the mask or not, whether you believe in vaccines or not, respect what the other person believes. And, uh, you know, champion your cause in your own way. You know, don't, you know, and, and I, I just feel that life is very simple. You know, I wish you feel, any, everybody out there could feel this calm and peace that I feel. And, and when I started, I said this was a bad experience because it destroyed everything I had, it, that future that I saw with creating these clubs and everything, but it was the best thing that ever happened because it made me human. Mm -hmm. It made me real. It made me think that what I do that matters is help somebody's life in a good way. Yeah, yeah. And, and I've had people explain it as, it didn't happen to me, it happened for me. Beautiful. I, I, I can't thank you enough, seriously. You're yeah. amazing. Yeah, 
And uh, if anybody wants to check out the art, you know, I, I'm, I'm doing a special with uh, uh, Lou here and, 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 and you can get a 50% off of the posters, which will allow you to create your sacred space. They come with six meditations. Each poster is themed, one is breathe, one is love. Uh, they're quite amazing. And they could begin to change your life in a good way. And if there are six, you could share them with five of your friends or loved ones. And, Absolutely. Uh, and, I, and I'll make sure I'm put- really useful. I'll put the link um, for the description and everything else so people know how to, how to, to reach it. Um, yeah, I'm going to check them out myself too. Yeah. So Lou, you're a special being, I will say that. And I think uh, your listeners are blessed to have you putting this out there. Thank you, man. Seriously, thank you so much.